John chapter 6 Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About five thousand men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. This morning we're looking at the fifth of seven major signs recorded for us in the Gospel of John. John calls them signs because they're meant to point us to the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. John writes at the end of his book that Jesus performed more signs than he could possibly write down, but he chose these ones so that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. And so it's incredibly important this morning that we pay attention to what John is showing us. But to do that, we need the Holy Spirit's help. And so let me pray. Father God, we pray that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us in this passage this morning and open our hearts to receive it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage is one of the more familiar stories in the Gospels. 
The feeding of the 5,000 is in fact the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that is recorded in each of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And so the gospel writers and the Holy Spirit who inspired them, they must have thought it was pretty important to give it that kind of coverage. And the publicity has worked out because just about everybody knows about this story. It's a Sunday school classic, and I guess that's because it's one of the only stories where a young child plays a heroic supporting role. And children just love stories where other children are involved. But the boy, he, he shares his five loaves of, of bread and, and two fishes with Jesus, and it's all a bit heartwarming, isn't it? Many well-meaning Sunday school teachers and pastors, they've used it to challenge their hearers to give what little they have to Jesus so that he can do something wonderful with it. If only we would give generously. If only we would share. If only we would have faith like this little boy. But wait a second. Now that can't be right, can it? Because that kind of interpretation subtly makes this sign point to us. It makes it a morality tale about what we should be doing. But John says that these signs point to Jesus. So if the way we've always understood this story is in a moralistic sense, then we've misinterpreted it and we need to revisit it. So what is this sign pointing to about Jesus? Well, I think there are two uh, main points. And the first is that Jesus is the supernatural king. Jesus is the supernatural king. And to see that, we only need to read the story at face value. By this point in John's Gospel, Jesus is well known throughout the whole country. Verse 2 says that great crowds were constantly following him around because they saw the signs that he had been performing in healing the sick. And verse 4 tells us that the Passover festival was near, and so that means that he must have been in public ministry for more than a year now. Because you'll remember a few weeks back we saw that he cleansed the temple the previous year at Passover. And so the crowds, since that point, were, were following him around, seeing what would this guy do next. And we're told that there were uh, 5,000 men here at this point. Therefore, in all likelihood, it was probably a crowd of somewhere between ten and 20,000 people, if we include the women and the children. Now, they only numbered the men, but we have every reason to believe that whole families and whole households were there, not least that a little boy is the one who came and gave his lunch. So with this vast crowd surrounding Jesus, he turns to Philip and he asks, where can we buy food for these people, Philip? And just as a, a small aside, it makes sense for Jesus to ask Philip, because we know from the other Gospels that Philip was from this region of Galilee. And so it's kind of like Jesus turning to the local boy and saying, Hey, you know the bakeries in this area. Where can we get takeaway for this number? But doing the quick maths in his head, Philip says, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have just a bite. He literally says it would cost more than 200 denarii, which is more than 200 days' wages. A little Googling tells me that Going by the average Hong Kong salary, it would cost more than 300,000 Hong Kong dollars for everyone to have just a bite of bread. I don't know how much a loaf of bread costs, but I guess that's a lot of bread. 
And even if they did have that kind of money, which they don't, but even if they did, there was no way they could buy that amount of bread uh, to feed everyone. You couldn't get that much at that time, right then and right there. It was an impossible situation. But Andrew points out to, the, to Jesus, this little boy with five barley loaves and two small pieces of fish. Barley bread was the cheap stuff, the, the, the stuff the peasants would eat. And it was likely that these uh, fish pieces were, were just enough to wash down the bread, just enough to give it a little flavor. There was no way that this was a serious solution to the problem. It, it's likely that the little boy, he just heard Jesus talking about food, and so he offers him his lunch. And so Jesus took what was offered, and he made use of it. We read it in verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather up the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them, and they filled twelve baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now this is a supernatural miracle. It is inexplicable according to the laws of nature. Though, of course, many people, even people calling themselves Christians, have tried to explain this miraculousness away. Some have claimed that everyone received just a tiny a symbolic amount, a token amount, a little piece of bread as though this was a prototype of the Lord's Supper. But it would be plainly impossible for that number of people to get even just one little crumb from so few pieces of bread. And John repeatedly says that they had their fill and more left over. So John will not allow us to interpret this in a symbolic or a ritualistic way. That explanation is not possible according to the text. Now, others have tried to read this story about, uh, as, as a story about sharing. And so the little boy, he offers his, his lunch and he inspires the crowd to share their lunches as well. And so everybody takes out their hampers and, and shares their lunch with their neighbors. And wouldn't you know it, there's just enough for everybody to have uh, enough and more if we all just share. But John says that there were 12 wicker baskets full of not just any old food left over, but specifically the pieces of the five barley loaves, after all had had their fill. So those loaves of bread, which wouldn't have even been enough to fill one basket at first, by the end the fragments filled 12 baskets. Now John will not allow us to take a, a, a kind of moralistic read an explanation of this story. The only explanation that we can get from this text is that Jesus did something supernatural. And I think that creates a stumbling block for many people. You see, modern people view miracles like this in exactly the opposite way that the Bible presents them. They see them as obstacles of the faith rather than aids to faith. They think, well, maybe people used to believe based on miracles, but now people believe in spite of miracles. 
in our modern scientific age, we know that such things cannot happen. Whereas, supposedly, gullible people back then didn't know that bread could just be multiplied infinitely. Of course, that's silly, but uh, some people will make that argument. And so they'll stretch and bend and break Bible stories to give alternative naturalistic explanations. It's a way of thinking that has held some sway, even in parts of the church over the last 200 years or so. But it is a very confused way of thinking. Undoubtedly, a, a story without miracles, it is much easier to believe than a story with miracles. So if I were to tell you that when I left my house this morning, I saw uh, busloads of hikers dressed in their, in their hiking outfits headed into the country park, well, that would have at least one advantage over uh, the feeding of the 5,000. It would be way easier to believe my story. But then, it would also have one disadvantage. It would be far easier to believe, but it wouldn't be worth believing. And if the Gospels, if they didn't claim that Jesus fed 5,000, or that he walked on water, or that he rose from the dead, they would be, in a certain sense, much easier to believe than they are now. But then the thing that we would be believing about them would be entirely different. If Jesus was just a normal, natural person, then we wouldn't have any problem believing that he lived. Nobody would have a problem with that. Even skeptics would accept that. But there would be a drawback. It's that the thing that everybody believed wouldn't be worth believing at all. A purely natural Christ would just be a teacher and an example, and we know plenty of wise teachers and good examples from history. Now, even if he was a little wiser and a little better than all the others, it wouldn't place any demands on us. But we aren't looking for a teacher and an example. We're looking for a savior. And a natural, as opposed to a supernatural Christ, can never be our savior. We, he would be just as powerless as we are, or even worse, because he would be dead by now. But the Gospels repeatedly and inescapably confront us with a Savior who is not merely a man, but God. And though that is a more difficult thing to believe, it is certainly a much more blessed thing to believe. It's not a trivial thing that can be believed because it happens every day. It cannot be believed without revolutionizing our whole lives. If we believe what the Gospels say about Jesus, it has to change everything about the way we think uh, about ourselves, about the way we think about the world, about the way we live, about the way we think about God. Jesus is a supernatural king, and he is able to do the impossible. There's no one like him. He multiplies food out of nothing. He walks on water. He rises from the dead. He heals the bitterness in our hearts and enables us to forgive people who've wronged us. He wipes the tears from our eyes and he gives us strength in desperate circumstances. He gives us the courage we need to stand up against evil and injustice. And he gives us love for people who are very unlike us. 
He takes our guilt and our shame and our self-hatred onto himself at the cross, and he gives us his own righteousness, his own glory, his own love. He does the impossible. Now, Jesus is not just a teacher or an example. He is the supernatural Savior that every one of us desperately needs. And if you're here this morning and you find that difficult to believe, fair enough, but at least see that it is something worth believing. It isn't a trivial thing. It's a life-changing, revolutionary thing. It's only because he is God that he can do impossible things, the impossible things that we most need him to do. So that's the first thing we, we must see from this passage, that Jesus is a supernatural king. But secondly, we see that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. When the crowds see this sign, they recognize that there was something supernatural about Jesus. And we see in verse 14, After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Perhaps they thought back to Moses in the book of Exodus, as he led the Israelites through the wilderness, and they ate all the manna they could eat, and all the quails. And Moses had said that one day a greater prophet would come. And here's Jesus doing something even greater. Or perhaps they remembered the prophet Elijah from 2 Kings chapter 4, who fed a hundred men with twenty loaves of barley bread, and he had some left over as well. Well, Jesus had just done something even more miraculous. More people with less bread had been fed. Surely this was the prophet they had been waiting for, they thought. And they were right, in a sense. Even if they didn't see the whole, they were right that Jesus was the prophet greater than Moses and Elijah. But he was more than a prophet. Moses didn't give the people manna. God gave the people manna. And Elijah, he didn't multiply the loaves of bread himself. He said that the Lord would multiply them, and God did. But Jesus fed the people by his own power. Jesus, therefore, wasn't playing the role of a prophet. He was playing the role of God. Jesus was showing he is God. And later on, when Jesus walked on water, he was showing himself to be the God of creation who hovered over the face of the deep. He was showing himself to be the God of the Exodus who led his people across the Red Sea on dry land. And in response to the terror of his disciples, uh, though the, the NIV translation masks it a little bit, in, in verse 20, he refers to himself by the divine name that God gives to Abraham. He says, I am. Don't be afraid. I am. You know, there's no doubt that these signs are meant to show that Jesus is God. But as soon as the crowds recognized his supernatural power, their immediate next thought was that they could use him for their own ends. Verse 15 says they were about to forcibly crown him as king. If, they, if he can do miracles, they thought, then there is no reason why he can't do the things that we most want him to do. 
by crowning him king, they would establish him as their political ruler. They would set him up as a rival power to the occupying Roman Empire. As they ate their bread, they could just about taste a, a new era of violent revolution, of self-governance, and of prosperity. They wanted Jesus to be their divine prophet and king so that he could satisfy their agenda. But Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, they had, uh, they had a kind of belief, and it wasn't a trivial belief. It was a genuine belief. They were genuinely asking uh, Jesus to do the things that they most desperately wanted him to do. They were an oppressed people, and they were asking for freedom. But it wasn't Jesus's agenda. And isn't it all too often the case for us too? We see that Jesus has supernatural power and he knows very, and we know rather, we know very well how he should use it. There are things that we desperately want from him and things that we most earnestly pray for and we try to figure out how to make Jesus take up our agenda. We pray, Use your power to free me, to heal me, to help my friends and family. And perhaps sometimes belief in the supernatural Christ makes things even more difficult because we know he could do something about these issues in our lives, but he just isn't doing what we want him to do. And why not, Jesus? I, I can explain to you exactly why it's the kind of thing you would and you could and you should do but he refuses. He refuses to be diverted from his own agenda. And that is difficult, isn't it? Because our desires are not trivial. They are very, very real. Perhaps you want Jesus to sort out your spouse and, and start making them behave as they ought to. Or maybe you've been praying to God for a change in your child's heart, but they just keep drifting. Or perhaps there's something bigger. Maybe, maybe you want God to address these very obvious issues that you see in your workplace, in politics, in the conflicts and sadnesses of people all around the world, and we say, you're God's king, you need to sort this out, Jesus. But Jesus has chosen his agenda over ours. And that can seem very harsh, because our desires are often for good things. But it's only harsh until we see that Jesus' agenda is far bigger and far better than ours. He doesn't establish a political kingdom in first century Palestine, because he's establishing a, an eternal kingdom throughout the whole earth. That's what his agenda was. He doesn't take away all our personal sadnesses, all our diseases, and all our deaths right now because he's in the process of resurrecting and renewing the whole of creation. He doesn't stop every injustice and evil in the world now because he's working to rescue a people for himself from the coming day of judgment when justice will be done fully and finally. 
Jesus's agenda is far more wonderful than ours. Our sights are often set far too low. We want him to sort out the mess that we see all around us, but Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. We ask for bread for our stomachs, but Jesus provides the bread of life. So let's trust him. Let's trust him to know better than we know, to do better than we know. And I think when we do trust him like that, when we do say, your will be done, not ours, then we will find that he does more and better than we could ever ask or imagine. But it's not easy. It takes faith. Well, let me pray. Father God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is the supernatural king that we need and that he can do the impossible things that we most desperately uh, need him to do. Please give us faith to trust him. Please help us to hand over the the agendas that we hold to him and say not our will but yours lord and please would you show us how his purposes are far better far greater than what we could ask for we ask it in his precious name amen